So hopefully we are hearing here and hearing online. And we are going to, if you want to just turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Last week, last week we talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he had finished praying. It set, it sort of settled his mind on what was to follow. And so we get to watch in a sense of awe as God, our Savior, walks his path determined to love us to the end. John chapter 18, I'm going to begin to read at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was, hap was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus said, I, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you give me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants. The high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? the Father has given me. So the, the nasty little plan that had been so carefully laid out now swings into action. But little do they know that another far bigger plan is moving along as well because Jesus' time has come. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons they meant business. They were prepared to do what was needed to arrest their prisoner. It was an intimidating group, a, a traitor, soldiers, some elite leaders. And it didn't take long before the silence and the darkness of the garden was replaced by the, the noise and, and by the lights and by this metallic clanking of weapons. And anyone would have been intimidated into silence and in, into inactivity by this aggressive group that were determined in their purpose. But look what the Lord Jesus does in verse 4. He went up to them and he asked them the question, the one that we're looking at today, even though he already knows the answer to it, who is it you want? And to everyone's surprise, it is Jesus who takes the initiative. He takes control of the situation. And the reason actually becomes very clear in verses 8 and 9 when he asks again, who are you looking for? But this time he goes on to say, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. 
And even as he is being arrested, Jesus' first thought is for his friends. He protects them from the hate being unleashed against him. Even in the middle of this potentially violent situation, Jesus demonstrates his protective love over his own. He never stops loving them. His protective love is just as powerful today as it was back then. It's really really interesting how this group responds to Jesus in verse 6. It says that they all drew back and fell to the ground. Which leaves us asking another question, who is in control here? See, in, in, all the, in the other Gospels, we read how Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, a kiss that should have been this warm welcome, in that moment became an iconic symbol of treachery and betrayal. Perhaps a sign was needed because of the darkness and the fact that many of the guards would not have known what Jesus looked like by sight, but, but what surprisingly stands out in the description here was the fear in the hearts of Jesus' enemies. They were intimidated by him, the holiness in his life. And and we should not be surprised at this because religious people who are antagonistic towards Jesus are always intimidated by him and, and they seek to silence him. But it is a dreadful thing to silence the voice of God. The truth is, the word of God will never be silenced. So so we must be careful of anyone who does not proclaim the name of Jesus or tries to undermine the death and the resurrection. Because as soon as we take our eyes off Jesus and look at anything else, we are on dangerous ground. You cannot miss the irony of this account. Notice that that Jesus knows everything that would happen to him in verse 4. So even though Judas, the soldiers, the, the leaders thought that their secret plans had surprised him, there's no surprise here for Jesus. He was ready for them. He had prepared himself thoroughly, and in fact, and prepared his disciples as much as he could as well. And if Jesus is angry at the cardus and the injustice of those who have come to arrest him, he doesn't show it. He appears calm, he appears confident, knowing that what is happening is a path that was prophesied, that was led down in scriptures years before. And Jesus presents himself boldly to them. He has got nothing to fear, he has got nothing to hide. He was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. He took the initiative. Jesus does not wait to be challenged. It is, it is his enemies who need challenging. So why did those arrested Jesus fall back or draw back and fall to the ground when Jesus uses the carefully chosen words, I am he? Well, the soldiers were probably unaware about who it was they were capturing. But they would have been surprised by Jesus' confidence and by his, his control in this emotional situation. But, but they would not necessarily have known the significance of what Je- when Jesus said, I 
um, he. However, the Jews, they would have certainly been struck by his I am statement. You see, this, this is God's name, the name for which he reveals himself and which Jesus uses here for himself in verse 5. Even, and in fact, he used it earlier on in the Gospel of John as well. Now, it's no accident that Jesus uses the words, I am. So even though it might not mean that much to us today, it would have certainly been very significant to any Jew who heard Jesus say it. You see, he's making a claim that he is God. Every time he uses the phrase, I am, Jesus is saying that he is the powerful one, the almighty, the eternally all-knowing creator of our universe and of everything else. Comes, of course, from the Old Testament. Most of you know this, when Moses encountered God in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, he, he was standing in front of the burning bush and God spoke to him. And when God revealed himself to Moses, he told him his personal name. And God declares, I am who I am, the one and the only God. I am speaks of the holiness of God and the power of God, a God who revealed himself to Moses, who led and shepherded his people out of Egypt. And in doing so, he showed his power, his authority, his strength. He used his immeasurable supply, his inexhaustible arsenal, and his unlimited resources to do so. So when Jesus says, I am, identifies himself having divine authority. In essence, he's saying, I am God and I am Lord of all. He is the one who protects. He's also the one who is sovereign control over all of life's events. And Jesus says, I am the one that you are looking for because I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. I am the Savior and I am your Redeemer. And in that moment, there seems to be this fleeting realization of the manifestation of divine power, of an exhibition of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And we just want, is that why they, they drew back and they fell to the ground? Because they recognized that they were in the presence of greatness. We should not ever make the mistake of feeling sorry for the Lord Jesus as he was taken off to be crucified. He's not some sort of poor fugitive who's finally been caught and captured by his enemies. Here is the Son of God with all power in his hands, willingly giving himself up to achieve God's plan. We have seen the protective love of Jesus, the sovereign love of Jesus Christ, but finally we see his forgiving love. All the disciples had courageously affirmed devotion to Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 35, and, and Peter decides to prove it. So he quickly draws a small sword and he starts to fight. 
Had Peter misunderstood what Jesus had said about swords earlier in that evening? It's recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 35 to 38. Let me read it to you if you're not familiar with it. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now he said, take your money and a traveler's bag and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one for the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophet has come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough, he said. There's an interesting passage, isn't it? Perhaps we can see why it is a little confusing for Peter. But Jesus was not suggesting that we use material swords to fight spiritual battles, but instead that we have a new mindset, a mindset that would expect opposition, expect danger to come against us. He had provided for them and had protected them while he was on earth, but now that he was returning to his Father, they would have to depend on the Holy Spirit and exercise real wisdom. Peter it would seem, took Jesus' words rather literally and thought it was now time to declare war. And there's a sense in which Peter's sword represents rebellion against the Word of God. Peter had made many mistakes. He, he chose to fight against the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapons. He had the wrong motives. He had accomplished the wrong results unwittingly. He had openly resisted the will of God. It actually hindered the work that Jesus had come to accomplish. And we can certainly admire him for his sincerity and for his courage, but zeal and courage and sincerity outside of the word of God is not a place that any one of us would ever want to be. So what should we do when we come under attack well, we begin by acknowledging that we are in a spiritual battle. The truth is, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are already in a battle. Satan and his demonic forces are out to stop the work of Jesus, and they will use whatever means is necessary. Many years later, we hear from Peter again. Now older and much wiser, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, and he says, be on your guard. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We, we have a, used to have a cat. Well, actually, we still have the cat. The cat's just 19 years old now. And when he was really young, he was an incredible hunter. Given the chance, he would hunt and catch rabbits, mice, birds, small children. Uh, joking, joking. <laughs> He'd play with them, he would torture them, he would eventually kill them, and we'd find many a decapitated rabbit in our kitchen floor. A cat that looked quiet and gentle was actually a vicious killer. And he was so successful because he could sneak up quietly, unnoticed, and then just pounce. 
And more often than not, Satan does exactly the same thing. He is sneaky, he's devious, he's deadly, and we, we, we need to be aware, we need to be careful. We need to know our enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we're told, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And listen, for centuries, the Christian church has failed to follow the most important principle of spiritual warfare. Never battle against flesh and blood. But all too often, we just forget this. Now, you may want to have nothing to do with spiritual warfare. You may think it's weird or scary to stand against the devil or to rebuke the enemy. And too many Christians are reluctant to fight against Satan but they have become experts in battling people. Now, let's be honest. All of us have had times in our lives when we have defended ourselves in anger or criticized or rebuked or condemned others. The problem is that the, the Bible forbids fighting against flesh and blood. And Jesus actually says the complete opposite. He tells us, love one another. As, as I have loved you, you must love one another in, in John 13. And, and the reason why a defeated devil consistently beats so-called victorious Christians is because we fight against one another. We waste multiple hours criticizing others, condemning other denominations, running down the way in which other Christians do things. And in the process, the real battle we lose the real battle, and, and the devil is just, well, just laughing at us because he is the only victor. Fighting people never advances the kingdom of God, no matter how right you may think you are, and, and you need to fight the right enemy. This is the most important principle in spiritual warfare. So let's get practical. See, if you truly believe that the Holy Spirit is able to speak into the hearts of people and that he has a far greater level of influence than you will ever have, shouldn't we take every concern, every observation, everything to him in prayer? There's a wonderful old hymn that says, Oh, oh what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because... We do not carry everything to God in prayer. And unfortunately, we, we come to God often after we have taken matters into our own hands, failed, and then left a trail of bruised and damaged hearts in our wake. And all the time, we are convinced that we are right. Listen, God loves people far more than you will ever do. And he is infinitely more, more capable than you will ever be. But, but if you really believe this, you would be constantly in prayer for one another. Just five thoughts on this. First is this. Pray before you act. In every situation, let's pray first. There are, of course, times when we need to speak and to correct and to warn, but you must make sure that you give God the first opportunity through prayer. Of course, it isn't that we do nothing and that God just does everything, but pray first. Give God a chance to minister into the situation, to maintain the relationship. Listen, if you pray first, God will either act directly into that situation or he will give you the wisdom to know how you should respond. 
Secondly, you should resist the enemy and take authority over him. Remember, the person is not the problem. However, the powers of darkness will take advantage of every situation, multiplying conflicts, hindering reconciliation, trying to destroy relationships. And you need to take a stand and face every situation by speaking out against the enemy. Perhaps you would want to say something like this, Satan, I rebuke you. You will not have my family. You will not have my friends. You will not have my leader. I stand against you. I bind you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, your authority comes through Jesus Christ, through the blood that he shed for you on the cross, and you can stop the enemy from hindering God's work in the lives of those around you. Thirdly, learn from criticism. See, rather than fighting people, rather than fighting flesh and blood, when you are rebuked, you should assess honestly whether there is any truth in it. See, every rebuke, every criticism, every accusation should be humbly considered. So before you react and fight back, stop for a moment and consider the possibility that actually you might be wrong. You need to be open ministry of others within your life. Now, this is, this is humility, but it's also spiritual warfare. Pride will cripple you. It will make you ineffective in your ministry. The thing is that we are, we are usually more wrong than any of us would ever care to admit. And, and even when you know that you're right and you really do know the truth, you must be open and willing to examine the content of what others are saying to you. And even when some of what they're saying is false, you should not be defensive, and you should definitely not fight people. So if there's any truth in what they are saying, it becomes an opportunity to repent and to become more and more like Jesus. Fourthly, you must never lose faith or fall under condemnation. Now, this is so important because people's words can hurt, can, can hurt incredibly sometimes. But whether you are right or whether you are wrong, it should not cause you to waver in your faith in God's word. Your confidence is in your salvation and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when other people disagree with you, you can become emotionally crippled. It can and if that criticism is extremely harsh, you can melt before your accusers and, and just agree with whatever they tell you. So you can end up doubting yourself and even doubting God. And when you begin to think, well, they must be right. I must be wrong. I'm always wrong. Your, your faith is, is, is going to start to weaken. This is what you must do. Take those difficult words over. Lord, prayer. Allow him to speak into that situation in humility and in openness. Weigh them up in God's presence. Weigh it up by God's word. And if he does not confirm them, if they're not from him, then reject them with confidence and leave them with God. But you must never lose confidence. You must remain strong in your faith. Finally, fifthly, 
you should maintain relationships at all costs. Proverbs 18 verse 19 says that an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Listen, if you're fighting people, you're not serious about what matters to Jesus. If you allow relationships to become damaged or doctrines to divide you or people problems just to flourish within your life, you're not building the kingdom of God. You're actually tearing it down. In fact, worse than that, you're actually aiding the kingdom of darkness. That's what, that's what Peter was doing here, admittedly unwittingly, but that's what he was doing. You need, you need to use what God has given you to battle in the right way, and most importantly, to battle against the right enemy. The emotion of anger is a God-given emotion, and certainly not all anger is sinful, but you need to direct it in the right places. Get angry at sin. Get angry at the devil. Release your anger in prayer and against the enemies of God's people. Redirect your combat towards the powers of darkness, not against one another. And if you can harness the emotion and energy that we would spend fighting one another and directed towards the real enemy of our souls, we would see the collapse of satanic empires that have been allowed to exist for, all, for far, far too long. If every single one of us made the decision never to fight another human being as long as we live, Satan would tremble. And we would realize the truth that our battle is not against flesh and blood. You must stand against evil influences in your life and in the lives of other people. You must become men and women who live with God-given authority and win victories at every level. You are called to fight in prayer. See, the truth is that Jesus did not need Peter's protection, and he doesn't need ours either. In Luke's gospel, we are told that, that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Grace. It was the last public miracle that Jesus did before he died. But, but also, this miracle reveals his grace towards you and towards me as well. See, if Jesus had the power to shun an angry mob and to heal a severed ear, he could have saved himself from arrest, from trial, from death. Instead, he willingly submitted. This whole time... Jesus is in control. He does not need his friends to fight for him. He, he does not want to fight for himself. However, he did fight for them, but not with a sword, but by following a path that would lead to a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem where he would die, where his blood would be shed. A path that he walked for you as well. Never forget, as Isaiah 53, 7 puts it, even though he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep, before, and as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. 
But don't feel sorry for him. Instead, praise him. Praise him for his infinite protective love over you. Praise him for his sovereign love over you. And praise him for his forgiving love. That's offered to you this morning. Let's just pray. Mark, do you want to come and just, we'll just finish with a, a song? But we're just going to just pray. Why don't you want to stand with me? Let's uh, just change our position a little bit and uh, just receive from the Lord this morning. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you chose a way that we would never have chosen. Or that led to our salvation. We just that you are the one who's gone before us, endured the cross, suffering and shame. But Lord, we rejoice that, Lord, today you're alive risen from the dead, victorious over death, over sin. Lord, that the, the enemy, our enemy, has been defeated. The cross, Lord God, you won, the, you won the war, Lord. And though the skirmishes will continue, Lord, we look to you as our leader, as our king, as the one who is victorious this morning. And Lord, it's with that we come with just thankful hearts and praise. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who protects us. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over everything, Lord, over the events of this world, over what's happening in Russia and in Ukraine, over what's happening, Lord, in, in other parts of the world, Lord God, where there's lack of, of um, either too much water, not enough water, where there's drought and famine, Lord. You're sovereign, Lord, over, Lord, the individual circumstances in our lives, Lord, where there's sickness and where there are problems and where there are, there are things that just, Lord, we don't quite understand what you're doing, but Lord, you're sovereign. But Lord, also we thank you that you are the one who is our forgiving Savior, our Redeemer, our hope. Lord, we thank you that you have taken us from darkness into light. You've saved us. And Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.